Welcome to Exploration Radio, a podcast focusing on the past, present, and the future of exploration. This episode is part two of our interview with Samantha Copeland, a philosopher whose research focuses on serendipity in science. Now, if you haven't listened to part one of our interview, some of the discussion in this episode might not make sense, so it might be worth listening to part one of the interview first and then coming back to this episode. So you mentioned a couple of times you have had an interest in researching the ethics around a few things. Uh, I obviously dug into your background and saw that you did research into the ethics of clinical trials. Yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about what was, what did you find interesting about that topic? Right. So the history of medicine is full of stories of unexpected discoveries and chance discoveries, right? And then um, you pair that up with the uh, bioethics approach to clinical research. And uh, what they normally do is kind of separate practice from research so that we get a really nice clean context in research to do ethics. And part of that is, for example, um, informed consent, right? So when someone begins to participate as a subject in a clinical trial, right? So there's something new is being tested on them. Then they sign all these forms and they're informed about all the possible risks. And they're told that even though they're participating in in a medical context, that the chances of them actually benefiting from what's being tested on them is slim to none, right? And so they go into this knowing that they're research subjects, that they're not getting a therapeutic treatment, they're getting an experimental treatment. But sometimes you make unexpected discoveries in those contexts, and those can be very valuable. And part of the uh, limitations that informed consent will put on research is that you're really only allowed to do what you told the person you were going to do. You can't just start doing new things in the middle because they haven't consented to that. And so I was really interested what happens when in cases where they've discovered something totally new midway through, Um, Do they go off on a new track? Because they can't just do that, right? Then they have to go through a whole new process. How do they take up that um, that new unexpected discovery in a way that both still respects the autonomy of the participant and respects their decision-making and what they decided they wanted to participate in and yet doesn't, you know, lose all of that potentially great discovery and new knowledge that they've generated along the way? And some, some people talk about this as incidental findings, but that's a slightly different topic. I'm more talking about potential discoveries. Like um, sometimes it's called a uh, collateral value. Ah, okay. Yeah. You think that they've designed a research trial to, to get this particular set of knowledge to test this one treatment or drug or um, technique or technology and to find out specifically like you have a hypothesis and you go in right and you're going to prove that hypothesis or disprove that hypothesis and meanwhile you're going to gather this specific set of information but then you get this collateral information that can be valuable and so i'm really interested in how we can set up systems that taps into and makes use of that collateral value so we're not doing more experiments than we need to uh, for one thing, but at the same time, not using people as, you know, uh, you know, like, like a Petri dish, you know, like people are people. So they have to be able to consent and be involved in that process. And so it's a very tricky ethical situation. What I really liked about your thesis is exactly what you said, that the process of the clinical trials kind of competes against the the knowledge that you can get out of it as well. So like how bound are the researchers to follow the process all the way when they might have gained information that might have been a lot more valuable and maybe they should explore that avenue at the at the cost of finishing the trial. Yeah. So I, I, I found that fascinating. Yeah, and it, it comes into like play in a general way. You often see it discussed as this like applied versus basic research or uh, fun, like a directed versus curiosity driven research. They suggest that what you need is this curiosity-driven research so that people can just go off on tangents, that you don't have this, you know, like today's funding applications require you to project an end to your research that usually has a, an application-based result, right? So Correct. you're supposed to do that and not these other things. And so how do we, it comes down to how we fund research 
in a very general way. But in medical research, the ethical questions come up in a very specific way, and it's really, it gets very tricky. And so I've been using that as kind of a, like an extreme version of the problem. <laughs> so if you, if you look at this one instance, it's not just a matter of, you know, whether student in a lab coat can spend his Saturday doing extra research. It's about how do we deal with the people that are involved and affected by our changes in the process as we go. And I think you've summarized that really well, that in the medical space, you have obviously the, the huge legal as well as the ethical kind of um, framework you have to maintain about dealing with people, their welfare, all of those things. But in a broader sense, in science, we, we have this uh, dichotomy that a lot of research now gets funded when you can tell people what the outcome is going to be and whether that outcome is valuable. Yeah. So you have to know the end before you start, which kind of goes against a lot of discoveries in science through serendipity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a, it's a major question right now. How do we fund research in a way that encourages serendipity or doesn't at least doesn't constrain serendipity, um, given that we've found it has such an effect, like chance discoveries have have made some of the biggest progress in many fields, right? They have people talk about them as being huge impact, uh, having a huge impact on their field and on the direction of research in general. And so if we believe that, how do we also believe that it's most appropriate fund research that has a predicted outcome, you know? So one of the things that I wanted to talk about, so in the research that you've done, uh, have you seen that there are there certain sciences that are more amenable or less amenable to serendipitous outcomes? This is a good question. Um, and it does come up. Uh, some people have argued um, that the observational sciences tend to be more serendipitous than the experimental sciences, for example. So okay. um, archaeology and astronomy and um, I don't know if I can think of geology yep. uh, tend to be more observation based. And so uh, there's there's two parts to that theory. Um, in one in one part, people say the reason why that is true is because you have um, a greater chance of non-elite involvement or even amateur involvement, right? Like there's lots of amateur astronomers and lots of people who know something about geology but are not trained geologists who encounter things that then get taken up by the community. So those communities or those sciences are more open to allowing non-professionals to make discoveries and contribute to their science, right? But the other, a little more insidious uh, way of thinking about it is that these are young sciences, which is obviously not true for astronomy and for, <laughs> for any of them really. And um, that uh, sciences are observational at their early stages and then they become more theoretical. Yeah, more systematic. But the people who argue for this are also the kind of people who say, well, everything's just physics at its base. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Everything can be described by a mathematical equation yeah, or a yeah. physical <laughs> equation or something like that. Right. You just haven't got to the root of the problem yet. <laughs> so that's right. So I mean, you can dispute that, right? About whether the that then you're talking about what kinds of what how does the division in science in the different sciences, you know, how do they relate to one another? And, and what is the unity of science then, right? Is there a unity of science? And this idea that science is going to be more or less mature tends to tie in to that idea that eventually, you know, they'll all, they'll all be explained by one big formula. Mm -hmm. Well, as a philosopher, I like to point out that it all started as philosophy. So if you want to talk basic science, <laughs> you should be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's a really important point that the root of all sciences is got to be philosophy. Mm -hmm. Before you come up with a hypothesis, you have to have a philosophical discussion or a, a starting point. I mean, wouldn't you? Surely that's the you case. Said it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I think, I mean, it's a, it's a point that a lot of people perhaps forget because maybe it's a social view of science that science has to be an analytically driven process. Mm. Uh, and we don't necessarily think that some sciences can actually be driven by philosophy. Surely they can be. 
I mean, I, when I say everything started as philosophy, I, I kind of mean historically. I mean, back in, you know, they used to call it philosophy about the world instead of science. Science itself as a, as a term and a way of thinking about how we're, what we're doing is, is actually fairly young in the long scheme of things. And so, uh, um, like Aristotle made a lot of observations, but he considered it all to be philosophical, like this was his philosophy of what, That's what he was seeing and, and why what he was seeing meant something else, right? So the theory, the building of theory. Um, so, I mean, you can make the counter argument and say, since it all started as philosophy, that's like the most observational science, the youngest of the sciences. We've matured. <laughs> True. Um, so it's, it's tricky, but I, I don't, I think anybody who wants to argue for a unity of science has a problem when they really make strong distinctions between sciences and the types of sciences that are being practiced. And, and I don't think that we can say, you know, all observations will ultimately be explained by a theory. Uh, in the sense that uh, there's, there's a problem in philosophy called emergence, right? Where um, things that come together on a lower level, you often get something that emerges out of them, but there's no strict causal relationship. Like you can't say that this one thing caused this other thing. So these layers obviously relate to one another, but, and, and in, um, in the Synthes article that I wrote, I, I talk about how we can, we can think of serendipity in this way, that serendipity kind of emerges out of discovery processes. That's right. Where we're, do, we're going along doing the things we're gonna do, and then in the end, we have ser a serendipitous discovery, and there's no direct way to say that's the cause and effect relationship that resulted in that and timeliness social connections um analytic you know by association of ideas all of that plays a role and no one thing is what generated that discovery process so so clearly from that point of view serendipity is an emergent property mm. so how much control can we really have on that process uh not sure yet working on that um <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> We'll check back like maybe next week. Surely you have an answer by then. So. I mean, I think the point is that we can't have control. Um, that, that once you get to a certain level of complexity and, and complexity theorists think of things in this way too. I mean, you, chaos theory, right, is an example of this kind of complexity yeah. theory. You might be able to trace it back to that butterfly and flapping its wings, but there's no way you can control all of those factors and you know climate change scientists are trying to tell us that this is a similar problem right with with no no direct cause and effect relationship we can point you to to fix there's a complex network of relationships that are all constantly influencing each other and also evolving so as those relationships change they change the factors within those relationships and then that also changes it and so um so we're getting to a level of, uh, of complexity where it's not just a matter of me not having enough data, <laughs> you know, like this is, and this is a, a common approach to these problems, right? We just need more data, you know, just need if we knew more about this situation, we would understand that cause and effect relationship. But I think the complexity is such that we can't understand it, that it's actually, it's, it's never going to be something that we can predict it's it may get to the point where we might be able to explain it but we'll never be able to predict it we won't be able to calculate all of those factors and i don't think that's just a human limitation i think that's uh and if it is a human limitation it's like a serious human limitation we're never going to get past that <laughs> um yeah that's so, so serendipity is kind of like that right so we're going to get to the point like we do with other complex situations where we can put everything in play that should <laughs> steer us in a certain direction, but you can't actually control it. Like, I think that that, that paradox of control is, is an illusion of control when it comes down to this. But I don't think that's a problem. I, I think that the, the feeling we have that that's a problem is, uh, is something we need to, to shake off, right? I mean, this is, it, it's in human relationships, right? I mean, you can't get into a relationship and think that you're going to be able to like set out your life plan and that this is where it's going to be. Like there's too many factors that influence each other, a level of complexity that if that's your attitude, it's never going to work, right? <laughs> no, no, and, that's why. 
you know, I think most of life is like that. You really have to just ride the wave. I think like, you know, like your point in that is um, it's, it's a fantastic point in that we don't control the end point, mm -hmm. but we can control the start and we can control what we do in the middle. Yeah. If you don't do anything in the middle, that's, I can almost guarantee you that you're not going to have the end result that you want. If you and I just sat here trying to be serendipitous, we will never get there. Yeah. But we have to kind of start doing something. And then perhaps if we have the right environment, then a thing like serendipity or discovery can then emerge out of that process. But without the process, you'll have nothing, period. And it's not just a matter of, uh, like often the word preparedness is used in these contexts where people use that Louis Pasteur quote, where it's a chance favors the prepared mind is the kind of general translation of it. Um, but that really creates this kind of passive approach. <laughs> like if we just have enough information or if we just cultivate the field in the right way then the seed will fall and you know, the plant will grow um but I, I think that's the wrong approach i think we need an active approach to these things i think we take an active approach to these things and mm -hmm. it's a bit more like a strategy um rather than a preparedness it's not about preparing it's about being strategic in your decisions but then we also need a different way of thinking about strategy because often strategy is this kind of means and thing where we've got an, an end that we're looking for we just have to assemble the right means um and i've been i've been using uh, work by sarah sarasvati on effectual reasoning in entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and uh she, she draws a really nice example where she talks about the means and strategy as being like uh what i call the martha stewart approach to to cake to baking right you know you have the recipe now all you need is the perfect cupboard full of the perfect thing and you can make that exact recipe just like Martha Stewart, right? And so we've got an end in desire. We just need the perfect set of means. But in effectual reasoning, it's more like opening the fridge and going, okay, what do we got? All right, we've got these things, we've got this, we've got this, we've got this. Let's make whatever cake we can make. You know, so the, we still want a cake. We still have an idea about the end point we're going for, but we're looking at the means we have. And we're influencing and shaping that endpoint according to those means. And so I think that's a very different way of looking at strategy, right? It's not that we don't have an, a desired outcome. We don't need to just say, well, we're just going to hang out and wait for serendipity to happen. You know, we're all we're prepared. We're prepared, you know, like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting. Any, any moment now, I'm happy for serendipity to show up. Something great is going to happen, you know, and it's a, it's a way of like strategically moving forward without being really strict about that outcome or really limiting our our picture of what that outcome is going to look like like you need kind of a fuzzy picture of the outcome you know <laughs> and and then you can look at what you have so do you think the uh the uncertainty of the outcome leads to um a paralysis in decision making that people don't want to make a decision because of that uh Definitely. I, I mean, I've experienced that myself. <laughs> like, too many balls in the air. What am I doing? Eating chips and watching Netflix. You know, like yeah, that's like a, yeah, that's a, I think we've all been there. Never underestimate the power of procrastination at a really important moment. Yeah, yeah. And uh, um, but definitely, there's a, so the think of the the nervous the nervous lab technician that. I was talking about, I used in my example earlier. I mean, people have commented, and it's true, that um, in some theories, they say, you know, the novice is the one who's going to be serendipitous because they're the ones who are going to be not limited by the theory that they've learned. They're going to have the open mind that's required. But what happens more often than not is that the novice assumes that they're wrong. Brought up in a class I was teaching uh, the other week, and uh, the student is like, yeah, but I'm not going to tell my lab director that this is a discovery you know I'm, I'm gonna assume that i'm wrong and dismiss it as an error and so we're we're definitely trained to like keep the uncertain out of out of the picture right and and, and part of the reason why news reports are so over exaggerating scientific and medical results all the time because they want to convey this certainty about the science right they don't want to say you know you actually read the article, the scientists are like, may, could, might, you know, like there's a lot of edging going on because yeah. they know that they can't draw the conclusions that they're suggesting might be drawn. But when they write their funding application, it's a totally different kind of vocabulary, right? Then you want to convey yeah. 
uncertainty. Um, so we do shy away from uncertainty as a, I mean, I speak from a Western perspective. So in definitely in Western culture, there's this problem. And it's a problem that's led to, you know, politicians telling us things can be done when they can't be done or people questioning climate change uh, scientists because they can't be certain about these conclusions. And, and I do think, you know, if you want to get to my big project of consciousness changing, I think dealing better with uncertainty is something that we as a society have to be able to take on. We have to let go of the idea that we have these, like, we can be certain about the outcomes of the process we're involved in. And because uh, I think it's a very problematic, it's a problematic ideal. And uh, because it's an ideal, we tend to be paralyzed when we don't have that kind of certainty. I completely agree. I think uh, I think that obsession about having order kind of leads us to a point where anything that has uncertainty, we want to walk away from because that's a risk we're not willing to take. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it goes against reality. Like that's just, the reality is we're going to be uncertain even when we say we're not, you know, so. So a lot of what you're talking about, I think the common theme there seems to be that you have to be somewhat comfortable with uh, change, as in change in your mm -hmm. environment and change in you as a person as well. Mm -hmm. Would that be a fair way to put that? Yeah. Um, I've heard it described as kind of, you know, you see in some of the, the recent work on how to, how to be more productive, you know, this idea of flow, right? This, this kind of going with the world. Um, that's how I personally see it. Uh, it of course has constraints, right? Again, if you, there's a difference between you know flow and just being bashed about by the waves. Um, so, you know, you want to have some kind of direction still, etc. So it's not just go with the flow, um, but definitely you have to be at ease with the fact that the end of your strategy may not be certain, right? That you. You may want to be going in a certain direction, but you may not get there the way you think you are, and it may not be where you think you want to be. And also, you know, you may not get there at all. Um, this is a this is one thing with you know using serendipity as a tool to direct you in life. I mean, you're really you're really taking a chance on chance. I remember reading a little bit about this sports scientist I was talking about, and they. I think for athletes, they have this uh, quite, um, I think, a much better radar than most other people. As an athlete, what made you successful when you were 23 is not necessarily what makes you successful when you're 33. Mm -hmm. So you have to train differently, you have to learn differently, you practice differently. Um, and I think maybe in a professional setting, we somewhat lose that aspect sometimes because what you're kind of judged on your prior knowledge and results. So your aversion to change then becomes harder as a professional, I think. Right. So you're like, you get into a pattern of doing things that have succeeded and you continue doing those because you're sure of success. Yeah, that's right. It's maybe as um, like, you know, kind of a, a professional an intellectual professional, um, I think it's easier to fall into a trap that what made you successful in the past is what will make you successful in the future. And what I found interesting about reading this is that in athletes, they, they are quite aware that what made them successful in the past is not necessarily what's gonna make them successful in the future because sport moves on, your competitors move on, there's younger competitors that come in, you know, there's still the older competitors that are still holding on. Um, so that concept of change, I think, is a little bit more in their face, whereas I think as an intellectual professional, maybe that's a little bit harder to, to see that. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I never really thought about it, but it, it, like to go back to what I was saying before, I mean, your body changes too, right? It's not like you can, you can do the same moves in the same way as you used to be able to do as your body changes. You have to adjust for that. Yep. And so, and you're, you know, your brain isn't that different from like, if you just think about your skills no, exactly. in, in remembering things, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, you made a beautiful point there that I wonder what the role of time frame then here has to do with that. You know, obviously your mind uh, effectively um, works at a different time frame than say your body, yeah. especially as an athlete. Yeah. So maybe the reason why we don't see it is because of the time frame that we see that change occurring in our 
in ourselves. I don't know. I've always found that a really, really interesting kind of perspective that as athletes, they're very attuned to it. But as professionals, we sometimes aren't very attuned to it at all. It's possible because I haven't settled down yet. <laughs> I'm only just starting <laughs> my supposed profession. Um, and, and everything that I've done has had to require a different skill set. Like I've, uh, I've uh, moved through um, different disciplines, you know, and, uh, and like writing, for example, in humanities, which is what I did my undergrad in, was quite different than writing in philosophy. And uh, so I actually had to learn a new skill set going to grad school. And then, you know, and I find uh, the academic career is kind of like that, right? Like writing papers is nothing like writing your dissertation. And, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, no, teaching classes is nothing like taking classes. So you really have to, you have to relearn and relearn and relearn how to, how to use your own skills in different settings. Um, hmm. So then uh, it would be an interesting study to see. Yeah, sorry, you've got my brain going now. Cause I'm like, <laughs> I mentioned lots of no, 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 talk I, about I, how, you know, you want to be a maverick to be serendipitous, right? And uh, cause you want to be a break yeah. free. And definitely there's this idea that accepting change is part of the personality characteristic of serendipitous people. Mm -hmm. um, not only change, in their own like kind of evolution but also this idea that um changing like their whole environments or changing their whole kind of tact on things or changing their whole profession lots of them have completely changed their whole profession but other people haven't so one of the classic examples is um is goodyear right and there's mm -hmm. some question about how serendipitous you can call his discovery of vulcanization because he was looking for it at the time he just found it in a way that was completely unexpected but i mean that was a guy on a one track right <laughs> no exactly i guess like there's also like things like um like entrepreneurs that they're willing to uh you know put themselves into new markets or try new things because they they see the value and then they see the um, the, the, the recognition of value and learning something in a new market and going, uh, even like Watson, I remember reading, they didn't really have a lot of prior knowledge about DNA structures, but they were willing to start from basically ground zero and then leverage off other people's expertise and then slowly build their own knowledge in that space. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, the interesting thing about entrepreneurs, right, is some people say that the most common factor of entrepreneurs who do really kind of crazy things and end up successful is that they, they had a strong supporting network. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when they did that, you know, the risk of failure was a little, a little less than in other, than in other cases. Um, but I think I mentioned effectual reasoning as an interesting way to think about entrepreneurial mm -hmm. thinking um, before. And uh, one thing I really like about Sarah Zvati's approach to effectual reasoning is the, the way she suggests um, entrepreneurs take up kind of stakeholders into their network, right? So they, they get people involved along the way and those people have means to contribute that then kind of shape the end goal. So um, what she's suggesting in that is that entrepreneurs aren't just on the lookout for something new and interesting and following their own curiosity, but they're allowing that curiosity to be shaped by the interests of others as well, right? And, uh, and that, again, you see this relationship between the individual and the community as being kind of key. Um, and it's something that I liked about what Johnson was saying is the, the idea that, you know, the, we are more creative when we're more connected, right? So what it does is it stimulates creativity because, and I don't think it's just because of more ideas being present. It's also, again, because of these relationships kind of pushing us in different directions and shaping our own interests and our own curiosity. Yeah, and I think uh, the defining lesson to me out of a lot of Johnson's work is that if you end up setting up the right community, then your ability to get feedback and filter out the terrible ideas, I think, accelerates. So the, so the more connected you are, the, the more quickly you find out about viable options rather than if you were a solitary individual and just keep working endlessly on it your trial and error rate uh, will be just so slow that you probably won't 
find the valuable outcomes. Yeah. And I think in entrepreneurs that work somewhat similar as well, like the whole Silicon Valley concept of try things, break things and then move on. Yeah. I think that's somewhat driven by that aspect as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and people are using social media to that effect in a lot of cases, right? You see a lot of shout outs on Twitter and at least in my Facebook uh, community of friends. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, hive mind inquiries, you know, <laughs> what do you all think about this? Let me throw it out there and see what kind of feedback you get from, from people who, you know, have different perspectives and yet are trusted sources of uh, knowledge. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. And I think um, they like one of the best examples that I uh, came across is the uh, the lady whose name I, I don't remember now uh, who wrote for The Daily Show and her whole stand up comedy routine is now not uh, driven by when she does sets in front of audiences. She puts out all her jokes on social media and then judges by the likes and retweets to see which jokes actually have the most residency time with the audience. And then she utilizes those. So like I not Samantha B. Uh, no, no, it's, um, I'll, I'll find you the link. Yeah. I, I came across it and I thought that was a really kind of interesting, a cool way to get feedback really, really quickly yeah. because the whole purpose of social media being connectedness is that it should allow you to then connect with other people's ideas and thoughts as well. And I mean, think about the difference between, you know, this kind of perspective on the potential that uh, getting a number of different perspectives on your ideas has for making them into better ideas versus, you know, the masses or the idea that, you know, you don't want to, you don't want the crowd, the crowd doesn't give you good ideas or the crowd doesn't come up with good ideas, you know, that you need someone who's cultivated and has the right kind of knowledge. And they're very different perspectives on how we, how we produce knowledge, right? And, and not always commensurable. Um, yep. But I do like the fact that more and more experts are, taking up perspectives of people who are non-experts necessarily in their field, but who are experts on other things, you know, it's just because people aren't experts in one way doesn't mean they know nothing of importance, right? Um, and Wynne does some really great work about using the sheep farmers in Britain as sources of evidence about radioactivity after Chernobyl, right? And that was one of the, the first groundbreaking studies that people now use to say, you know, we should be doing citizen science and we should be involving, you know, patients in clinical trial design and, and all of this because they have perspectives that are very important. It's a tricky subject, how you get more non-experts involved in expert work. But, uh, but there's, a, there's a movement afoot, right? In, in understanding expertise in a different way. Uh, so let's go back to a point that you made before, that as uh, science evolves, uh, does the rate of serendipity change during the evolution of a specific science? I, I could not answer that. <laughs> um, mostly because I, I think that uh, empirical work needs to be done to say whether that's true. I have a feeling that uh, no, the rate does not change in the sense that the same thing, same kinds of things continue to happen, but our perception of how much chance or how we came to know things does change. The emphasis might shift. I think that's a really good way to put it. I guess the reason why I was asking that is to say that obviously there is an evolution in sciences from where they become more observational to more uh, experimental or analytically driven. Um, so that imposition of order in the science, does that have an effect on the, um, the likely serendipitous outcomes we'll have out of the work in that science? Right. So I don't think it's the imposition of order itself that's the problem, but the, the inability in an ordered system to effectively take up collateral value. Um, so the... Ordering, like designing an experiment is just as likely to produce unexpected results as, you know, walking out the door. It's, uh, I don't think there's any difference in the, the potentiality of that context to produce something unexpected, right? We always have expectations, no matter what we do, there's going to be limitations on our expectations. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're always going to think something is going to happen and it sometimes doesn't. Um, because we have to think something is going to happen. Otherwise, we wouldn't walk out the door or do an experiment, right? So we, we need some direction for our actions. So, so those factors are always going to be the same. And because we 
have limitations on our expectations, uh, there's going to be unexpected things. Um, the difference is that in some contexts, and so I mentioned it in relation to clinical research, where there's good reasons for constraints on following up on those things. Um, and in science too, there's good reasons uh, for constraints, and even in your life. I mean, I can't, if I went down every road that was interesting to me, I'd never make it to work, right? Like you, at some point, you have to say, no, I need to go down this road now. You know, I, I have a goal that needs to be accomplished. And if you didn't have that goal, then you would never accomplish anything. You'd just wander around the streets of Rome forever. And, um, and so, uh, but, and then I write about transparency in, in a couple of different places and about uh, this kind of diffusing epistemic agency. Part of that is the idea that if you have an environment that encourages uh, the allowance of other people to take up things, mm -hmm. um, then you have a greater chance of those things being taken up. So uh, a well-ordered science that limits not only the the performance of an experiment, you know, so you've got an experiment that's designed, you're going to do that experiment no matter what happens during it, can also, you know, have resources for taking up things that happen along the way that you can't follow up in that, that time and place. It's not, that's not an impossible thing. You can't follow everything up. You're always going to have to, you know, restrain your activities in some way, but you can have better and worse systems for doing that. Um, and also, People often think about multi or interdisciplinarity as a, a way of assembling the perfect team, you know, like being mm -hmm. fully prepared, you know? <laughs> but also it's a way of interacting and sharing ideas in different ways and throwing them into different contexts where they can be taken up. So you can have a very tight idea of what your discipline is and what you do, you know, like I'm fully aware I'm not a scientist, um, but I can ask scientists <laughs> or I can get, you know, have an exchange with a scientist. That's not an impossible thing. And then that way, those ideas get exchanged in a way that they might not if what I mean by ordered is not ever going outside of your discipline. So there's different senses of what order can mean. Um, it doesn't have to be chaos to, to be more able to take up uh, diverse directions, right? That's right. Um, and I think you make this point in your uh, research that the way that our current scientific, um, let's talk about publishing really, uh, the way that's kind of set up is that they, there isn't really a framework to allow people to uh, be involved at different steps in that process. Outside from your research group, um, and I would argue probably in, within your department kind of research group, there isn't very a, a very effective tool in allowing other people to jump on. If I do an experiment and it fails at step number two, and you did an experiment that failed at step number two, it probably is worthwhile for us to share ideas because yeah. that would make that whole process better. Yeah, and the, the kind of publication bias towards only positive results and you know not publishing half-finished or negative result experiments uh, is, is part of that issue. Um, again, a lot of people think that this is gonna be resolved with databases. <laughs> we just if we just had a bigger database and then all this information would be available for anybody who wants it. Um, but there's all sorts of, of, of issues and questions about how that can, that can actually happen, right? Like how, how those databases can actually be useless if it's just a bunch of numbers. Like you need to know the context in which the data was produced. You need to know the, the method of storage yeah. of the data and how it's being um, influenced by that storage. There's all sorts of factors um, that good people in philosophy are working on. Uh, but also, I mean, but that ideal is kind of coming into play. So I'm the chair of the Serendipity Society. I didn't mention that earlier. A society of serendipity researchers of all sorts and entrepreneurs and uh, business theorists and, and participants. And because there's so many people kind of working on serendipity as a problem and there's some really solid research coming out of all these different directions. And so we really wanted a, a way to pool that um, for new researchers. Oh, cool. One of our members, Marcus Lutzakrush, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, um, from New Zealand has published on our blog. He talks about these uh, uh, new projects and, and in astronomy particularly where uh, they have, um, for instance, they just have all of these pictures coming out of the telescopes that are 
um, out there in space right now. And all of these uh, pictures coming from telescopes on Earth, and they don't have a way for the astronomers in existence to process the data on these pictures. And so they've, mm -hmm. they've made this into a... Like crowdsourcing? Crowdsourcing, like that. that's the word. <laughs> They're crowdsourcing their science. Wow. Really interesting new development, right? This idea that it's it's not just, you know, individuals who are fully trained, but anybody who can look at this thing and and make the right kinds of observations can contribute to this overall project. So that's kind of the reverse of bringing people into the science. It's like getting the science out there and uh, and getting people involved in actually doing this science, you know, like like they crowdsource translating. Yeah. Um, but this is, it's a really, it's a different way of getting scientific work done that inevitably brings in these different perspectives and doesn't just increase our data, but also increases the relationships which form our expectations about where discoveries are gonna come from, right? So it has this kind of broad implication, I think. And it'd be interesting to see how these affect science itself and what's being done in science and how we perceive of scientific discoveries, right? I mean, our, our kind of classical narrative of a discovery is, you know, you, you see this picture all the time of Fleming standing in his lab with his Petri dish, you know, looking at it, you know, really profoundly. And you think <laughs> that's what a discovery is like, but really it's becoming more and more a network activity. The time. Now, somebody in a talk once asked, you know, they're like, yeah, but, you know, how many authors are you going to list on a paper, really? And I'm like, okay, that is a problem. When you start thinking of science as this collective enterprise, where does the credit get given? How do you go about giving people money? Yeah, that's why. These are huge problems that come out of it. But, you know, we've dealt with problems before. And I think this has quite a large implication on do we recognize discovery as a eureka moment or a moment, let's just say, or do we recognize it as a lot of uh, small moments that build up? Uh, and what do you, you know, what's more valuable? Is it the end or the start or the middle? If we now look at discovery as a movie, which frame is important or are they all important? Because without one, you won't understand the context of the other one. Yes. And I mean, once you expand out of the moment, you do have the problem of where do you stop, right? I mean, you can't say that every frame in the movie is essential no, that's right. to the plot. that would be some point at which you focus on one rather than the other. But I think our focus is what we need to do is recognize that it's purpose driven, right? There's reasons for focusing on one rather than another. And those reasons can change and our focus can thereby change. Um, and I've actually, I've, I've, just had accepted for a publication in Perspectives on Science an article about the Fleming narrative and about exactly this problem. That what it amounts to is this rhetoric that even though we know uh, lots of social scientists have pointed out in great ways and historians of science and even um, people in innovation theory and organizational management theory have pointed out that these are processes that entail multiple kind of either steps or interactions or incidents, you know, that accumulate into a discovery process. We still see that picture of Fleming with his Petri dish in front of, in, in his lab, with his lab coat, right? You know, you still see this depiction of the Eureka moment as being what we think of as a discovery. And uh, that paradigm just needs to go, like, <laughs> <laughs> for all these uh, kind of reasons about, you know, it makes it hard for us to accept that, you know, the lab technicians played as big a role as, as the, the yep. leader of the lab did in that discovery, the more we focus on the leader as the depiction of the discovery, right? And the more we focus on that single moment, you know, the harder it is for us to, to point out all those other moments as being equally valid. And we don't learn how to generate a purpose-driven narrative because it's all or nothing, right? Mm -hmm. It's either we're saying it's a Eureka moment or it's like, yeah, but look at all these other important things that are happening. And in our popular imagination, we want to be able to, to give multiple narratives. That's right, yep. We're never going to be all of the steps, but we want to be able to say, well, this discovery and what I want to focus on here is, and then to actually give your focus. And that's, that's a tough one. Um, 
So I'm not saying that you never have eureka moments, that there's never a moment in which a discovery is made by someone in a single context with a great idea. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that it's a lot less than our, our narratives of discovery tend to perpetuate. So one of the things that I wanted to ask is when you were saying that astrology or astronomers are outsourcing the interpretation in their science, do you think that's going to lead to possibly new branches of science? Well, that's a very good question. I had never thought of that before. <laughs> and when you say a new branch of science, you mean like a new, uh, a new, like, because I always think of science, branches of science as being kind of a uh, substance, like they have an object which they study or a type of object which they study. But I guess that's not really true. I mean, when you look at chemistry, for example, I mean, they... I guess I, I'm thinking of it from the point of what we call... Uh, yeah. a person studying a certain branch of science. If you were someone that uh, did image analysis or like if your uh, background was not completely bent on what we, what we would look for as a uh, astronomer, then surely the definition of that science or a scientist would change as you go along. Right. These things do happen, right? And, and they happen with uh, new ways, usually with a new technology. So if you take, you know, neuroscience and what people think of as neuroscience now compared to what people thought of as neuroscience, you know, even a generation ago, um, very different and much more diverse methodologies are being used, you know, and you've got functional MRIs involved, you've got, you know, uh, the deep brain stimulation, techniques from uh, medicine are being used to, to talk about functionality of brain circuits. Like there's, there's all sorts of stuff going on that you wouldn't even have imagined possible, you know, let alone. And now there's people looking at the effects of light on brain cells, right? I mean, this is not That's what you would have thought about <laughs> as being part of, as possibly being part of neuroscience. Um, so, so yes, I mean, I, but I, I think that's, that happens with uh, that happens with different methodologies and different technologies being introduced. Is that the the object of the science changes? So there's different objects being studied, but also the, you end up also getting science about the technologies. So what you might end up with is people uh, being able to do science on astronomy as a science, right? And there's there's a way of like how how do these crowdsourcing things work for generating knowledge and who knows I mean like I guess if people are looking at the stars and at at the space and what's out there in different ways you're going to get different perspectives on how we can look at it which is kind of the cool thing about I mean one of the reasons I think people focus on these serendipitous discoveries is that they're they're not just cool because they arise by chance they're also have a great impact on our way of thinking about things, right? So That's again, right, yep. it's, it's not just our expectations about what's going to happen. It's also our expectation about what kind of knowledge is out there and, and how we might be able to explain it and how we're going to even access it. You know, like these, mm -hmm. are, these are big theoretical and perceptual changes in how we might do science from now on, you know? And I guess that the analogy that I gave about like black swan events, to me, that's the important link between them, that the world doesn't look the same after the event as yeah. it does before the event in a lot of ways. Yeah, like it's world, it is, it's world changing, it's worldview changing, right? Mm -hmm. you think about what might happen out there in the world or what might be possible in a different way than you did before. And uh and that, that fundamentally changes what we think of as the science that we were doing before, right? Now we think of it, that science itself, that practice and that investigation of the world in a different light as, a, as having all these new possibilities that we didn't think of mm -hmm. before. So yes, but I couldn't predict. Comes back to the same thing. We, we, can, we know it's going to change, mm -hmm. but we're never going to be able to predict. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to uh, go back to, which we were talking before, we were talking about how you can increase the engagement. And um, I remember reading, um, and I think I sent you the link about Stephen uh, Johnson's book about where good ideas come from. And it talks about the fact that one of the greatest um, 
sources of innovation or uh, uh, collision of ideas was the cafes in 1920s Paris, which allowed people like Hemingway and Picasso and all of these different artists to come together. And it led to this explosion of you know, people testing different bounds in their art. And I translate that to say science, where in order for me to get any recognition about a lot of my stuff, you have to kind of write it down and uh, publish mm -hmm. it. But the act of writing it down, you almost always, like most of the time in science anyways, you write down what you did, not necessarily what you were thinking about while you were doing it. And that thought process is probably really important in some sciences, I would say. Yeah. So uh, Kevin Dunbar has done some really interesting studies where he's like sat in with uh, scientists in their lab and watched what they do. Um, and he's, he talks about the, the impact of uh, recent, the way in which science now people often work in a group. You don't get the isolated scientist in their lab at home with, you know, their wife and their, <laughs> their, their dog hanging out in a lab. Yeah. Um, but people are in a group, right? And they have meetings about things and they discuss things with each other. And that there's processes, you know, of uh, that it's when they come together that they sit down and they hash out, you know, because the unexpected happens all the time. Dunbar noticed, he's like, all the time, you know, unexpected things happen. And then they get together and they hash it out. You know, could it be this? Could it be that? Well, okay, we'll do that experiment to test this. And could it be that? Could it be this? And people bring in things from their own experience and from other fields. Um, so definitely this is already happening in the in science and in the practice of science and a lot of scientists this is how they they think of science is something you do you know in that kind of setting um so can you just repeat the question because there was another part of my answer I, I guess overall the question was there are some sciences where the the discussion aspect is probably more important right. than the written down aspect that this doesn't get written down right and it does take it takes outsiders like dunbar to go into the lab and to write this stuff down because I think practicing scientists and as a non as, as a non-practicing non-scientist I'm, I'm speculating here <laughs> but I think often you just uh, forget about that part of your process right um, it it's not it's not the process that you think of as science it's just how science happens right it's not it's not what you're trying to do it's just what how you're doing it it's part of the methodology right yep um, and, and this happens in philosophy too, right? You know, um, people will come together and they'll chat about things and they'll throw ideas out at each other and often drink a lot. And, <laughs> and then that whole part of the process gets forgotten. And, uh, but it's still a really important part of the process. Um, in philosophy, we do tend to recognize that as an essential part mm -hmm. of our process because we're trying to formulate an argument. And so the hashing it out is the, is the work that's being done, right? It's partly in our head, but also we use other people to bounce ideas off of. Um, whereas I think because of the way science is taught and uh, because of the way it's written down, you definitely get uh, a disjunct between how, that, how those ideas get formed and then what ideas qualify as science, right? <laughs> there's, there's a difference that's in that. So sociologists of science have been like, this is all really important. And psychologists, you know, Dunbar comes from a psychology perspective. And he's like, this is really important, the way in which these ideas are formed. You know, I think it's also really important because it, it gives us clues to the production of knowledge, like what we think of as knowledge and how we think we ought to get there. And philosophically, that's, that's really important. Um, I don't know that that's universally the case in the sense that now um, you see a lot of blogs on science mm -hmm. and that really highlight that process, right? Uh, there's definitely more discussion in public about it being, now that this may be coming out of the, the increase in group science that become, yep. it's become more apparent that this is what people are doing. Um, but even even Watson's autobiography, I mean, the reason why it's such an interesting story of a discovery, you know, the discovery of DNA, you think of it as just this article that was published, but he tells this long, complicated social narrative of, you know, unexpected encounters and, you know, social interactions and ideas being banked 
about, and he really emphasizes that he points out all the times they were wrong, right? They had, they went down this path and they were wrong about that. And then, oh, we were worried about these other guys, you know, scooping our discovery. So we did this and this instead. And so, and that kind of interaction has really become more and more highlighted in the people who read about science and who look into how science is done. It's not necessarily being, you know, highlighted by politicians or by funding agents that hasn't trickled down no, to that area. Those, those areas of, of the Western world that still really want certainty so they can make promises. You know, they, they have a hard time dealing with that, that part of the process is being so essential. But, you know, they're, it's, it's getting to be more, it, there's, there's an awareness of this as being part of the process of science itself and not just something that gets done before the science starts. Yeah, no, 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 that's all right. I mean, it comes back that there's a saying by Einstein that if you have one hour to solve a problem, you should spend 55 minutes thinking about how to do it and five minutes actually doing it. And I think, you know, we, we sometimes emphasize the, the doing part more than the thinking part. We do, but even, I mean, the, the image of, of Einstein as the ultimate scientist is, is part of this idea that, you know, dude did all his thinking by himself. And you really have this image that Einstein just hung out on his own. But he wrote letters to people and had full-on ongoing relationships with other scientists, equivalent to the Paris Cafe that you're talking about, where mm -hmm. they, they bantered ideas back and forth. They critiqued each other's perspectives. They, you know, the, the historians that have dug up these letters between them, and this has been going on for, you know, I don't know, ages you know <laughs> like, i'm not a historian yeah. no that's a hard. really long time you know you can dig up letters between key scientists and key philosophers and key thinkers in all sorts of areas that there were ongoing exchanges in which diverse people contributed to the formation of an idea and all we get in the end is like you know descartes by the fire on his own but that's not how it happened right <laughs> Uh, that's uh yeah. hopefully that becomes more of the common collective understanding of science so we finish up with two questions that we ask all of our guests what is a uh an idea a concept or something that you think needs to die in science <laughs> uh the the solitary genius making a discovery yeah i, I really i really do um even if the original observation was a eureka moment and did, uh, you know, did impact a single person at that time, um, it still takes a, a community to make a scientific discovery. So, you know, you're, that, that ideal of, of being, you know, so smart that you're going to make the discovery all on your own, I think is, is, a, is a bad ideal to pass on to young scientists. And uh, I think they'll all do better if other ideals are promoted <laughs> instead. Yeah. I think that's a great one. Um, and conversely, what's an idea that you think we should maintain in science at all costs? That <sighs> um, uncertainty is okay. <laughs> that, that it's okay Perfect. to be uncertain and, um, and that that's an inherent fact about the world, right? Um, and that's not just in science, but an idea we have about science as well, right? I, so I guess that, I guess that, 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 that would be a second thing I want to abolish about science is the idea that, you know, we can have certain projections um, that we're going to, we're going to one day have enough data to explain everything about the world. Um, it's always going to be perspectival. And so, I think uh, I think what needs to be cultivated is that individual perspectives um, have something important to contribute. It's not just a your individual perspective is not a reflection of your lack of knowledge, but is rather your essential contribution to the pool of knowledge that's out there. I think that's a, that's a pretty good spot to end on. No worries. This is uh, this has been really fun, and thanks a lot for you know finding me and hunting me down. That's <laughs> it's great. Thank you for taking the time and uh, thank you for not ignoring a random email that uh, popped up in your inbox. So I appreciate that. I'm just glad I caught it. Okay. <laughs> Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve and Amart. Our producer and all-round go-to guy is Dan Hershowitz. This podcast is recorded at the Perth Music House. 
A special thanks also goes out to the Q Media Group for giving us the permission to use the audio from the documentary Superstructures of the World, the Grassberg and Erzberg Mines. If you'd like to know more about Exploration Radio, check us out on explorationradio.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And as always, if you like this podcast, please review us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, let's keep exploring.